Hello, everyone. Welcome to more DEI discussions. I am your host, Dr. Marlon Moore, president of Marlon Moore Consulting, a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy firm designed to support organizations establish intentional and strategic business practices to ensure representation and inclusion in their workplace and communities. More DEI discussions are a series of interviews with leaders who share their candid insights into the many important aspects of creating and advancing DEI principles. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by the Honorable Judge Joy Malik Oldfield of the Summit County Common Pleas Court. Before entering public service, Judge Oldfield served throughout the state of Ohio as a plaintiff's trial attorney. Known for her work ethic, sharp courtroom skills, and compassion for humanity, Judge Oldfield undertook causes for individuals who suffered age, gender, and race discrimination, sustained serious personal injury, and or unfortunately lost loved ones due to professional or other negligence. Drawn to helping people in a larger way, she left a successful career as a private attorney to enter public service. She joined the General Division of the Summit County Common Pleas Court in November 2016, and again, her colleagues immediately selected her as presiding judge of the Turning Point Program, the Felony Drug Court. Judge Oldfield has received, received numerous awards and recognition for her work. However, most recently, she received the 2022 Harold K. Stubbs Humanitarian Award for Distinguished Service in the Field of Law and the 2024 President's Award from the Ohio Common Pleas Judges Association. Very impressive. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the Honorable Judge Joy Malik Oldfield to more DEI discussions. Judge, how are you today? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing phenomenal. I know you have a busy schedule, um, so thank you so much for taking time to be a part of this very important topic. And you are doing some wonderful work with the Turning, po Turning Point program. So if you don't mind, just share with our audience a little bit, um, what is Turning Point? I love our Turning Point program. So, you know, in our courthouse, we handle civil disputes and criminal disputes. Um, people who are charged with a felony crime are the criminal cases that we get here in our courthouse. And the Turning Point program is an effort to uh, categorize people who are charged with a felony crime who are suffering from the disease of addiction. And we try to combine court supervision with drug and alcohol treatment in a therapeutic setting that allows them uh, some other rehabilitative tools to help them move forward. So I love the other tools. That's That sounds important. So you have the turning point resources, but there are other tools that you all believe are necessary. What are some of those other tools that and resources you provide? Yeah, because, you know, um, people come to our system with a variety of things that just aren't going right in their life. Um, our program is for people who are high risk, high need. High risk doesn't mean how serious is what you did. High risk in our vernacular here means... Um, are you likely to reoffend? How can we help you not reoffend? And some of the factors that we have seen impact that are, are you getting obviously the right drug and alcohol treatment? Are you getting mental health treatment? A lot of our people have co-occurring disorders. 
And then there are other, you know, socioeconomic things that play a role in these risk factors. You know, do you have a stable job? Do you have the education to obtain a stable job? Um, do you have transportation? Do you have the ability for transportation? Is your license valid? Um, are you having struggles in parenting? Do you have an open children's services plan? Should we help you navigate that road? Um, and, you know, we have other wellness opportunities too. So it's really a wraparound approach to help somebody complete court supervision who's struggling with addiction. And um, people can do it on two different kinds of tracks. One track, uh, when you're done with the program, you still have your conviction, but you can move forward with stability. And if you're otherwise going to be eligible later to get that conviction sealed or sometime expunged, you can go through those channels. But there's another track in our program that allows you to do it. And upon completion, the conviction uh, is not entered against you and the case is sealed and dismissed. So that's an exciting opportunity. Both of those are determined by the legislature. Mm -hmm. If you're eligible for it, we let you do it and you still get the same resources in both tracks. So uh, it's exciting. Oh, that's awesome. So that really, that really gets me to think about some of the key terms as it relates to DEI. I'm going to say equity and inclusion, for example. Yeah. So equity, having access to resources, jobs, transportation, yeah. wellness. I hear equity. I hear access. But then I hear inclusion, feeling a part of a program that is designed to rehabilitate and set individuals on a positive trajectory. OK, yes. I'm sure there are other programs like this, I would imagine. But yours is one of the first where I can really distinctly see a commitment to equity and inclusion. Why is that so important for you as the presiding judge of Turning Point? You know, I really feel like the programs you have in the courthouse need to um, be accessible to the people that you serve. And uh, a large component of my criminal docket uh, consists of people of color, uh, people with a different ethnicity than, quote, white, and so we want to make sure that we're opening that funnel so that they are receiving those services. You don't want to have your docket comprised of a certain percentage of minority uh, population and then have a special program that allows them to achieve stability and rehabilitation be primarily white. Sure. So, you know, we have worked really hard to figure out how do you get into this program? Uh, how are you eligible for this program? And are there disqualifiers clinically and legally that are having a disparate impact? And what can we do to change that? That's something that I have really had a commitment to, even back when I was a municipal court judge and I ran the drug court there. I, I really believe strongly in making sure that these services and these resources are available for everyone. That's awesome. So that, that actually was going to answer, uh, you answer my, my next question, is how is your team working to ensure equity? So to look at your intake form, your policies and procedures, I mean, that takes time and a commitment to make sure that, you're serving as best you can the community. So can you speak to a little bit about how you're really focused on that? Yeah, you know, we started, um, I started this analysis when I first came to, to the Common Police Court because I did notice that my program there, uh, it was primarily, um, you know, white people. And I thought, huh, that's funny. I wonder why. Mm. So I looked into sort of our criteria to figure out, well, why are these folks in my regular criminal docket, why aren't they being screened for this program? And one thing that I noticed was that we started screening maybe a little later than we should. I firmly believe that if you're eligible for the program, we can learn that about you in large part, at least for purposes of getting you a screen, when you're charged and arraigned, you know? And so at the arraignment level, we changed the, the system. 
And at the arraignment level, we now find out if this person is eligible for a screen. How do we do that? We find out what are you charged with? So does your crime satisfy our legal criteria? Does your record satisfy our legal criteria? Mm -hmm. uh, those two things are, are very important. And then if they're eligible, it's noted for the judge uh, who gets the case, this person's eligible for a turning point screen. That way you're not leaving it to just an individual judge to think of it on their own. Mm -hmm. Because we all know, you know, we identify with what we identify with. We're all human beings. And if you didn't think of it for this person, but you did for this person, that could be subconscious bias. You, know, you don't even realize, obviously, that that's impacting you. So changing the timing of the screen was huge. It opened up the funnel considerably. And then, you know, we started examining things like, um, are we offering treatment services uh, in in areas that, um, you know, people need served? Sure. Um, you know, not everybody can get to this side of town, for, perhaps, you know, we have a lot of great resources on this side of town, perhaps. And so we had to sort of figure that out. And, you know, just little, um, tools like that along the way have helped us. Um, and, you know, we go to national trainings, so we learn things. You know, one thing we learned was that um, people with a violent offense in their past were were listed as people who could not enter the program. Mm -hmm. And that was having a disparate impact. And I thought, well, you know, that's a disqualifier, though. Well, I learned in national trainings that there really is no um, significance in terms of your ability or need, your, your need for the program or your ability to finish the program, there's no significance to whether you had an assault conviction in your past. Right. So I thought, well, why, why do we have that? Probably a stakeholder thing. You know, nobody wants to hear that, you know, you're quote, helping a violent offender. Well, in reality, they're not here for a violent offense. They're here for, you know, some kind of probably drug possession or drug related, um, you know, crime. And this way we're helping them get stability. So they don't reoffend here, but also so that they don't commit any other offenses mm -hmm. that helps everybody. So, you know, that eliminating that legal disqualifier has opened the funnel for us, too. I think just it really took um, sort of a wraparound approach. And, you know, those are just uh, examinations of, um, you know, what what you offer. But we also had to examine our own mindset. Yeah. And that just requires additional training for our team, which we always engage in and we continue to do. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because my mind, I, you know, <laughs> You know, I think about the court system and I can't help but to think about bias sometimes. Not always, right. but it's you you mentioned it. So, you know, unconscious bias can be a real thing, yep. especially in um, uh, the areas that, that you support. So how do you how do you work with your team to manage their own bias and treat every individual as just that their own individual self? Right. Um, and look at them from a very humanistic standpoint. So what are some of the things that you all do to kind of help manage that bias process? You know, um, obviously just, you know, your standard trainings on uh, diversity and equity and inclusion and, and understanding language and understanding perspective and perception. I think those things are critical. And then you have to, I think, lead by example. You have to really be patient with people, be tolerant of what you're seeing that maybe you're not familiar with and not be afraid to address it. I mean, we had a, a case where, uh, one of our participants uh, had been at a residential facility and uh, he got terminated. And when you get terminated from a residential facility, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that we have to do to sort of bring you back into the fold. Do you need to be in jail? You know, what's going on? And what we had learned from the residential facility is that um, he was, quote, aggressive and uh, intimidating to the front desk, uh, the, the staff member. And, you know, of course, we don't want to hear that one of our participants is being violent or offensive. But in our team meeting, as we're talking about it, I said, well, listen. 
we have to really examine what happened. We weren't there. We're not giving anybody a pass to treat anybody disrespectfully. But he is an African-American male. Mm -hmm. She is a white woman. Would she have felt the same way mm -hmm. if I spoke the same way to her that he did? I don't know. And I'm not... This isn't like a judgment about her or him. It's sure. just, you have to analyze those things. And my team was like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't think of that. I said, we got to really give him because we have not had that experience with him. Right. And he's pretty intelligent and um, articulate. And so it could be one of these, you know, unconscious, subconscious, I never know the right word, bias. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't even realize you're doing it. Good people identify with what they identify with. Good people you know, you can't control how you feel. She felt intimidated, but it may have been unwarranted in terms of some kind of consequence. We ended up putting him in a different residential facility. He's thriving. He's thriving. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really glad that, you know, we are able to have those conversations. My team consists of, um, you know, people of color, um, young people, women, men. And so it's really great to have that diverse perspective and thought process because, you you, you know, you're getting it from everybody. So. That's awesome. You know, and so you, you, one of the things that unconscious bias can create um, are blind spots. And those blind spots are usually formed because of our worldview, our experiences. And so I'm glad that you kind of introduced this way of managing bias, which is just a pause. Take a moment, right. slow down your thinking, reflect on the moment um, and and use that opportunity before for making decisions. So um, really, really glad to hear that. You mentioned your team. Um, how do you work with your team to empower them to make a difference in the lives of your, your program participants? I imagine you know, all kind of people and they're just dealing with a number of different um, potential challenges. And so they have to pull together resources to yeah. really be supportive. And how do you empower them to do that? I um, One thing that I do uh, is I really uh, impress upon them that, you know, you are the liaison for this participant and the community. You are the liaison for this participant and the court. Mm. So your communication with them is critical. Uh, I know that um, our case management uh, comes through the Oriana House and they do motivational interviewing training with uh, each case manager, which is, you know, really a key and critical component. And my team uh, consists of those case managers, but also um, people that work directly for me in the court system. And I think, you know, when you think about motivational interviewing techniques, it, it's about asking open-ended questions so that people want to share their thoughts and feelings. It's about showing support and respect for people's strengths and, and using reflective listening skills. So it's good that they have training in that. And I think that that provides mm. an inclusive environment. Um, That's awesome. And we try to do team building with each other too. Uh, we also try to do team events at resources we want to introduce our participants to. So for instance, we really wanted our people to learn how to use the bus because some of them don't have ability for transportation and it was a struggle for them. So we did a team outing where we took the bus. Awesome. And it was great. We, you know, I, I, I mistakenly thought it was like, we're going to have some private bus trip. It's like, no girl, you're getting on the bus at the regular time. You got to catch the bus. Right. I was like, oh, I had no idea. And I was really glad to do it because- you do see the environment that your participants are navigating and, and, it, and it really opens up your mind too. That's awesome. Well, as a board member of a regional transit authority, I'm so proud to hear that you all took those steps. That's very impressive. You know, and, and I must say, Judge, um, thankfully, I haven't been in a lot of courtrooms in my lifetime, but, you know, sometimes they can be very intimidating um, 
and um, feel cold and scary. But I've had the fortunate pleasure to attend the Turning uh, Point program and sit through uh, of one of those proceedings. And I just have to tell you, my listeners, you are one of the most humanistic um, mm. and, and genuine individuals I've ever met. And I think that really shines through. I felt comfortable, not, not that I was, you know, being, um, having a conversation with you, but I could tell how the participants felt comfortable. And then that allowed them to open up more. And be open to the guidance that you all were, were, were providing them. So I just wanted to say um, kudos to you for that. And uh, I really appreciate that. You know, the role of the judge, particularly in a specialized docket, is one of the best practice standards that we receive. It's critical. And I don't pay short attention to it because a lot of our people have not had praise from someone in authority. And so for them to be able to connect with me is a key and critical thing. I can't you know, close it off them. I, I um, was fortunate to be CIT trained. I went through CIT training when I was um, a municipal court judge because I felt like that would help me deal with mm. individuals with mental health concerns and really be a better listener. And so I do try to use those tools. And I think it has really um, helped me in this role uh, on this docket. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, just a couple more questions, if you don't mind. And this one has been sitting sitting with me ever since I knew we would have this opportunity today. Okay. So um, last year, there was a decision by the Supreme Court um, uh, through through the Harvard University admissions process to really um, look and peel back some of the, the uh, race or admissions processes. And so because of that, as an entrepreneur, a DEI professional, I've seen numerous public entities, um, private entities start to scale back their commitment to DEI um, for a fear of, of being called out or challenged for this work. I find, Judge, that turning point with what you all are doing, it's almost like you're doubling down your efforts because you believe in DEI and you know the power of this work for your community. So I'd just like to get your, your brief thoughts about the importance of DEI, even in 2024. Well, so, you know, that decision, uh, you know, is um, in some t in some context limited, you know, um, it's certainly, you know, they held it was un it's unconstitutional for uh, public institutions um, to use race as a factor in their admissions process. OK, so let's set that aside. for a minute. How does it impact, you know, our you know employment setting in the private sector? How does it impact me in my turning point? You know. What I'll tell you is that um, as a threshold matter, it didn't interpret, you know, employment practices for private employers. I recognize I'm a public court, but I think that's important for people who are listening to know. Sure. It doesn't mean that you can't have inclusive criteria uh, of your own in your own private employment. Um, I, I will tell you that, um, you know, if you want to be inclusive, I don't think that decision creates an environment where you can't. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe that we need to make sure that the resources we have are accessible to the public we serve. So my DE&I efforts are not to, quote, use race as a factor for admission. Mm -hmm. They are to make sure that people of all um, ethnicities, race, gender, um, religious background have the same opportunities. Awesome. 
so that they can access these resources. And so our efforts have been to make sure that we're not having the opposite of some disparate impact on them where they're actually not getting the services that quote white people would get in the system. Um, and I think one way that specialized DACAs in general can really be good about that is to recognize that these kinds of programs are for people who are high risk and high need. Okay. So if you if you're taking low risk people just because you know they're going to do a great job and they're going to do a great job because they're low risk they they don't need a bunch of intervention to help them succeed because they're in trouble they know they're in trouble and they don't have those risk factors right mm -hmm. so if you're just taking people like that you're not really doing what we're supposed to be doing because you know you're, you're giving them too much intervention sure. low risk people don't need all the intervention we have. Um, if you're if you're really using the risk need analysis like we're supposed to, then that is going to provide you an inclusive environment too. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think you know that decision. Obviously, you know people can um, apply it in different contexts, but I don't think that it should ever be used to limit a court's um, offering Shit. of resources uh, for community members. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let me just first say first and foremost, thank you. Um, on behalf of all the citizens of Summit County um, for what you're continuing to do and your understanding of the power of that work. So how can, how can we've talked a lot about Turning Point, Judge. How can people learn about the Turning Point program? You know, I always want to sort of spread the word about Turning Point because people don't realize, you know, the courthouse is a place of healing mm -hmm. for defendants, for victims, for litigants. Uh, it really is. And I don't, I think people think of court and they think punishment. Um, punishment can be therapeutic because consequences are therapeutic. You know, um, most people I see are not going to prison forever. They're going to get out if they go to prison at all. Right. Yeah. And who are they when they get out? Because they're in our community. They live with us. There are colleagues, there are coworkers, there are neighbors. So we want to make sure that they're stable. So I find that opening up access to the courthouse helps people learn more about the program. So okay. I do a lot virtual um, turning point participants can appear in person and hybrid uh, uh, by zoom. And my zoom link is public and we let people observe court. Okay. And I think that's one way for people to learn about what we do. Um, we also publish our turning point uh, program description on our court website so that people know what the criteria are. Uh, we have a mission statement. We have a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion commitment uh, statement, and those are published as well. And then we try to go into the community every month with our program and bring our participants somewhere that we think they need to connect. Oh, we we heard this sober house is great. Let's have our meeting here this week. Mm -hmm. uh, or we think um, you need to learn about jobs. We're going to have opportunities for Ohioans with disabilities present to you at this place this week. You know, like the bus situation where we took them out to the... Metro. So places that we think they need to connect with, that's a good way for community agencies to learn about us too. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, you know, the education piece. I mean, I'm speaking to you, you know, uh, I go and teach at different events. We've been asked this year to speak at the national conference again, which we're really excited about. And so that educates people on what we do. Um, those partnerships, those educational opportunities, uh, those field trips with our participants, I think all those things sort of shine a light on what's happening here. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, we're, we're just about out of time, unfortunately. I don't want to take up all of your, your day, but just one last question for you. Um, you know, what parting advice would you give leaders? 
And I'm going to say leaders because it's whether you're the head of a, a, a corporation or the head of a nonprofit or presiding judge. What advice would you give those who want to continue to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion? You know, I think a um, couple things. Um, if you're somebody who wants to be inclusive, I, I would encourage you to learn more about how to be inclusive. You know, you think you're doing it right, but uh, you know, we all come from our own backgrounds. We know what we know. The only way to learn about other backgrounds is to educate yourself. And so I would encourage people to go to trainings, uh, to read up on commitments in that regard before you try to just sort of unleash some plan or policy without the proper background or experience or education or knowledge. That's probably the first thing I would say. And then to have those critical conversations with your team members and your employees uh, so that you don't shy away from tough, tough conversations, you know, um, because you don't want to say you have a commitment to something, but then be afraid to talk. about. It. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Judge Oldfield, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you for sharing the many benefits and the power of the Turning Point program. And thank you for, for being an inclusive leader. I sincerely mean that. Um, I as I mentioned before, your commitment, your courage, your humility are all um, behaviors that I think will set the tone for, for this work and for your community for, for decades to come, quite honestly. So um, thank you so much. And I just wanna thank everyone for joining uh, this episode of more DEI discussions with my special guest, Judge Joy Oldfield. Uh, additional episodes of more DEI discussions can be found on my podcast, uh, on most podcast streaming platforms, or you can visit my YouTube channel by searching for more DEI discussions. I am Dr. Marlon Moore, and I wish you all the best along the DEI journey. Until next time, remember, diversity starts with you.